Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, earnings season rolls on. We'll take a look ahead to results from the chip maker at the center of the artificial intelligence boom on Wall Street, NVIDIA, which just became the third most valuable company in the S&P 500. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. We're looking ahead to London, Milan and Paris fashion weeks as the luxury sector faces cooling demand for its products. I'm Doug Krisner, previewing the next move from the Reserve Bank of Australia. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the business news you need to wrap up your week. Available on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app and everywhere you get your podcasts. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with earnings this Wednesday from NVIDIA. And for more on what to expect, we welcome Bloomberg Technology co-host Ed Ludlow. Ed, NVIDIA this past week edging past the market value of Amazon.com, then Alphabet worth $1.8 trillion. Is this unstoppable, this company? Uh, it seems unstoppable. It seems like a juggernaut, right? And when you look at what Wall Street expects them to say when they post earnings next week. There are no signs that that will stop. You know, the, 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 there's a lot of misconception and, and, and a lack of understanding about why NVIDIA has been on the tear that it has. And when we talk about NVIDIA in the AI context, what we're literally talking about is that the AI development, the, the building of large language models, it, it requires just hundreds of square miles of data centers, just racks and racks of servers. And those servers are basically lots of big boxes that get stacked up on one another. And those boxes, you can think of them like supercomputers. So, you know, the listener at home has maybe a desktop and it's a sort of rectangular shaped box. Think about something that's 10 times the size of that and then take that box and times it by a thousand. And NVIDIA's role in that is that they provide the brains in that box, the GPU or AI accelerator. And all of the money that's flowing into AI to build out that infrastructure the reality is that you've only been able to build it with NVIDIA products. And, and, and until very recently, there was no one else on the market doing that. So the, the, the numbers are that Wall Street sees revenue growth of 369% year on year in the coming quarter. I'll, I'll repeat it, 369% top line growth. And what's so astonishing is that last quarter, they had 280% top line growth year on year. Um, so it just doesn't seem to be tapering out yet. And and the shares are up 230% in the past 12 months. So it's, it, it's yeah. everything is just, uh, you know, coming up roses for this company. But 
Who are NVIDIA's biggest customers, and who are its top competitors? Yeah, I mean, this... The question of who the biggest customers are goes right to the the explanation I gave on on how AI works in the real world. And and the short answer is the hyperscalers, the cloud companies that that own, operate, and control the data centers. For the most part, that means Microsoft Azure and and, and NVIDIA powering AWS, which is Amazon's cloud business. Um, The other big player is Google and Google Cloud Platform. But remember, Google's done a bit of work with its own custom silicon. But for the most part, even if you see a news headline, like, for example, um, Anthropic, which is a really big AI company that makes a generative AI product, is powered by NVIDIA. We don't mean that, that you know, the CEO of Anthropic knocks on the door of, of NVIDIA in Santa Clara and says, hey, can I have a big bag of chips, please, and throws it over his shoulder and off he goes to make AI. The reality is that you're, you're still reliant on a hyperscaler and that NVIDIA ships those H100s, they're called, to the the cloud uh, provider and the data center that they go into. And, and the AI company never has direct uh, contact with with NVIDIA. But but it's kind of a triumvirate. You have NVIDIA providing the hardware, the, the hyperscaler in, uh, that runs the data centers operating it, and the AI company basically pays for the compute, pays for use of that cloud capacity. And who competes uh, at that kind of level with NVIDIA? Yeah, so for, for quite a long time, time now. And when I say that, it actually is not a long time. It's basically two years because all of this has happened in two years. Um, NVIDIA has been the only uh, name where they're actually building at scale these GPUs, graphics processing units. And in very simple terms, a GPU can make lots of mathematical calculations in parallel at once. That's why they're good for training large language models or building AI. AMD has recently come to the market with a similar product called the MI300 series. But you don't just sort of start building these in, in, in huge volumes. It takes a really long time to ramp. And as you know, there's been a chip supply crunch uh, in the post-pandemic era, which has impacted that. Um, so AMD is slowly ramping. The principal difference between the two of them is that AMD realizes NVIDIA's got a real hold on this market for training large language models. But once you've trained the model and you want to start actually running the, the technology in the real world, you know, have consumers using generative AI tools like ChatGPT or start integrating AI tools into your own software, you then move to what's called inference. In other words, getting a response from the model. You ask it something, it gives you a response. And AMD is basically saying, ours is going to be better because what they all have in common is it's incredibly expensive um, to to do both of those functions. Uh, And so there's a battle that's brewing now as the market shifts from training models to actually using them in the inference stage. And it'll be interesting to see if AMD starts to take some market share. So what's next for NVIDIA? How do they pivot now? Well, I think they just keep going. I mean, you guys may have seen that I did an interview with NVIDIA's CEO, Jensen Huang, last week or the end of a couple of weeks ago. And the next big market is what Jensen's calling sovereign AI. So right now, all of the, the financing and activity behind AI is being done by the private sector, big tech companies. But there is an academic school of thought that 
because of how impactful artificial intelligence will be on society, governments should have their own operations, right? Governments should have supercomputers and data centers um, that they control, that is training large language models, that is giving some kind of national level AI competence. And Jensen's been flying around the world to every region, speaking to the, you know, the leaders of those nations and doing deals. You know, saying let's collaborate. We can do something where we sell directly to you. That doesn't really show up in the financials yet. Wow, a lot to look forward to. Well, our thanks to Bloomberg Technology co-host Ed Ludlow. Thanks for being here, Ed. Thank you very much. Happy weekend. And now we turn to the Fed. And minutes from the January meeting of the FOMC will be released this coming Wednesday. And policymakers voted to keep benchmark lending rates unchanged at that meeting for the fourth time in a row. So what will they reveal and how soon will the Fed pivot to cutting rates? For some insight, we welcome Bloomberg International Economic and Policy Correspondent Michael McKee. So, Michael, what are you expecting to see in these minutes? You didn't need me. You just answered the question. <laughs> that's that's what people want uh, on Wall Street to find out is when and under what conditions will the Fed start lowering interest rates. And I'm not sure they're going to get a complete answer. Um, we have heard from a lot of Fed officials since the meeting that they thought the news was good on the economy and things were progressing towards the 2% target, but they're not there yet. And so they want to see more good news, which just basically means they need more months of data. How many months? Well, they're not sure of that either. They uh, they have to wait and see how the data comes in and whether it is uh, in any way confusing. So when you're looking at the minutes, you'll probably see you know uh, something along the lines of most members agreed that progress had been made, but there's not going to be anybody who says it's time to cut. Well, boy. Well, let's talk about some of the data we have seen. And uh, we've seen a, a pretty robust labor market, although seen a lot of, of especially in the tech sector, job cuts nowadays. Consumer demand has been good. Spending, you know, not as strong. Sustained economic growth. The soft landing. I mean, all of that is pretty good. Well, we've had a a, a week where um, the data sort of contradicted each other when you're thinking about it in terms of the Fed. We had a strong CPI number, which took a lot of people by surprise. And of course, uh, raised questions about whether inflation is going to be coming back or not. Inflation could be driven by a strong economy, which uh, we had been seeing. And then we got the retail sales numbers that uh, showed a lot of weakness. Some of that may have been weather-related, and it may reverse in the in the next month, which would be another argument for waiting on uh, the Fed side. But uh, if the economy is weakening, then the, you would assume there would be less inflation and we'd be more on the path that the Fed wants to see. Uh, The jobless claims numbers came in down this week, which is a bit surprising given uh, what we have seen and heard in the layoff announcements. But it does suggest that the labor market is still strong. And as long as the labor market's strong, people will be spending. It's only a question of how much. Yeah. And the and the high inflation that we're seeing, I mean, that's affecting uh, certainly housing, uh, business, you know, borrowing and, and uh, infrastructure spending. So what else is it affecting negatively? Well, <laughs> this last month's uh, numbers were uh, kind of distorted by the weather. So we know there's some issues in there. But uh, inflation is making a difference uh, in 
uh, housing definitely because we've been expecting housing prices to come down in the CPI and the PCE, and they haven't really done that. Uh, they actually rose in the CPI numbers, and so Fed officials are a little confused about that, as is everybody, uh, why uh, we see rent prices falling and that doesn't translate into lower housing numbers because the, they use the rent numbers to calculate those. If that were to, to finally take off uh, the, and go down, then the Fed would feel a whole lot better about the inflation picture right now. But the good news is inflation has come down a lot to the point where now for the last six or eight months, uh, Americans' average hourly earnings have outpaced inflation. That looks like the American people haven't noticed yet but they're finally ahead of the game, and maybe they'll start to notice that soon. Yeah, someone should tell them that it's uh, <laughs> it's looking good. Hey, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, our next uh, FOMC meeting, March 19th and 20th. So what are we going to get between now and then, or what is the Fed going to get to uh, come to their decision? We'll get another CPI reading, and we will also get uh, the uh, jobs numbers for the month. Uh, And we should get retail sales before that. So they'll have another month's picture. They'll have the February picture uh, before they have to make a decision. We won't have the PCE index, which is the inflation number that they follow. And there's there's been a wedge between the CPI and the PCE that is partly based on the weighting of the things in the various categories. PCE has been running a lot. Uh, slower, and it's uh, much closer to the 2% uh, goal that the Fed has, uh, and they won't have that data. So expect March to be an on-hold meeting. They've kind of signaled that at this point. By the time we get to the meeting after that in May, there should be uh, enough data that they can make a decision. But uh, if it comes in contradictory as it has this past month, uh, they may not be ready then either. Well, it's a lot to look forward to. Well, our thanks to Bloomberg International Economic and Policy Correspondent Michael McKee. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we're looking ahead to London, Milan, and Paris for Fashion Week as the luxury sector faces cooling demand for its products. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. 
The biggest fashion brands will be showcasing their designs across Europe in the coming days at the London, Milan, and Paris Fashion Weeks. These glitzy events are happening at a challenging time for many luxury names. So how are the world's most illustrious fashion houses protecting their profits while also prioritizing style? Well, for more, let's go to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. Tom, it's a tricky time to be in fashion, cooling demand for luxury products after the pandemic, along with slowing sales in China and higher inflation have squeezed some key drivers of growth. This season of European Fashion Weeks are expected to be as glamorous as ever, with the fashion elite descending on London, then Milan and then Paris. While luxury giants LVMH and Hermes had good stories to tell in their most recent results with strong sales and key brands, there was less good news than the likes of Burberry, which issued a profit warning wiping the equivalent of almost $130 million off its outlook. I've been discussing all of this with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Andrea Felstead and our European luxury reporter Angelina Rascoet. I started by asking Angelina how important Fashion Week events are to these big brands. These events are very important because obviously you're unveiling and you're you, you're going to be uh, showing your consumers what uh, will be the trend. And uh, obviously in the age of social media, uh, you know, you have influencers, celebrities who's got millions of followers. So uh, actually the impact of these fashion shows are huge. And, you know, uh, but it's just not just fashion shows. Obviously, I mean, if you think just about Miley Cyrus, like uh, recently she was at the Grammys and she was wearing a Gucci, you know, at some point she was wearing a Gucci gown with a bag. And that's very important for the brand. You know, you think about Gucci, I'm going to be going to the show uh, in Milan next week. It's a brand that it's in turnaround and uh, it needs all the attention and the visibility it can get. Uh, they have a new, recently new designer. I mean, this is going to be his third show so uh indeed it's going to be uh you know a very important but remember there's always a lag also between the unveiling of a collection so his first collection sabato de sarno at gucci was in september and it's now only hitting the stores right now so there's always a lag of course so the the financial impact cannot be assessed obviously right away uh right away what you can assess is you know the bus the uh, you know if a video goes viral that's pretty much uh what you can assess Andrea, that brings us very neatly to something you've been writing about recently when it comes to Gucci as well. Just the headline from your piece, Gucci can be revived, but it won't go viral. Tell, tell us more about how you're thinking about the, the series of fashion weeks. Yes, um, obviously Gucci, as Angelina mentioned, it's it's moving from its bold uh, maximalism uh, that it had before to this new, much sleeker aesthetic in line with quiet luxury. This um, this trend that emerged around a year ago at the at the shows um, early last year, which sort of set the direction of fashion. Now the worry is that we're having a bit of quiet luxury fatigue so um this could be potentially awkward for gucci i'm i'm not sure that the 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 new gucci is really um is distinctive enough to to stand out in the way that um the past designer alessandro michele did um it's also going to take a while as angelina said to come through so um yes this will be really one to watch miley cyrus not enough to revive an, <laughs> an entire brand andrea i wanted to ask you though about burberry as well because they made a splash the, in the last season of fashion weeks in, in september with their takeover of bond street station for example but the company still saw a profit warning in its recent earnings report. 
is this going to be a, a difficult showcase for Burberry? Do they need to turn around the vibes? Um, I think it's going to be just as sort of confident and exciting as September was because what Burberry needs to do is, as Angelina mentioned, it's all about creating a buzz, creating a halo effect. And Burberry really needs to do that. So it's got some quite nice products some coming through. It's got a lot of nice bags. Um, you know, Daniel Lee is really pumping out the products. There's a, a new trench bag, which is canvas, very much in line with the nylon bag trend we've seen there's been a lot of narrative that Burberry has been putting the prices up and that's putting people off that's missing the point you know what you need is brand desirability it's starting to happen Burberry's starting to move there's a list index of the most in-demand brands that people are searching for and buying started to move up gradually I'm seeing some young people with the Burberry check bags Burberry check scarves often vintage so that's really good signs what it needs to do is it really needs to pump up that desirability it needs to get those bags out to influencers so that we can follow and see them in you know instagram posts tiktok videos pinterest boards and i think when that happens that that it could be good for burberry because i i feel that a lot of the turnaround stories a lot of the brands are kind of They've been around for a while. I mean, Gucci was was exploding around eight years ago. Mm. The Miu Miu turnaround is and the Prada turnaround are pretty well established now. I feel that there is room for something new and exciting. And if Burberry can get it right, that can be it. As you can tell, I'm the lone Burberry bull. <laughs> Angelina, I wonder, do you have a contrarian view on, on, on Burberry from what Andrea was talking about? Is that the big highlight from London Fashion Week that you'll be looking out for? Yeah, so for sure, Burberry is definitely the 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 the, the most famous brand uh, coming out of uh, London Fashion Week, and uh, and uh, the, the tricky uh, bit with Burberry is that obviously being a, a publicly listed company, and it's not a group; it's only one brand, right? So. So, so it has to report results uh, on a quarterly basis, and that scrutiny sometimes is very difficult for a brand that's in turnaround mode. I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, Andrea is right. You have to be confident, and you know that about uh, about the designer. You know, he he wasn't named less than two years ago, and it doesn't happen overnight. So, so that's the tricky bit. And um, and Burberry, in comparison to all the other groups, you know that you know. Yves Saint Laurent is part of one group. Uh, Loewe is part of a group. So, so you don't get the granularity of their performance on a quarterly basis, and and that's that's actually the the, the challenge for for Burberry. Because of course, LVMH, another company that you cover, Angelina, is 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 an absolute mammoth in this area, and and kind of covers a lot of ground in terms of brands as well. Does that allow for more space for underperformance than of certain brands? Yes, I mean, uh, you know, and 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 they're not, uh, you know, they have some uh, mega brands like Louis Vuitton and Christian Dior, and some brands who've uh, who who started from a very uh, small, uh, you know, with very small sales numbers, and now we know that they've actually grown a lot in the past five to ten years. You know, if you think about a brand like Loewe with uh, the designer. Uh, Jonathan Anderson. He's an Irish designer trained uh, at the London College of Fashion, and uh, he's done wonders at Loewe. We don't get the numbers of Loewe, but we know he's done wonders, and they're very happy with him. Uh, and it's the same thing with Celine, with Edith Sliman. 
again, we don't get the numbers, but 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 we know uh, these brands have fared very well. And actually, another brand that that was at some point problematic. I mean, he said it in, uh, I think it was uh, more than five or six years ago. Uh, in results that he, you know, Mark Jacobs was struggling, and they managed to turn it around, and they're very happy with the the turnaround that they managed to do. So, but being part of this wider group where you only have numbers by unit, not by brand, that is very helpful. That that gives breathing room for the brands and for the managers who are in charge and the designers as well. Andrea, can you give us, since we're talking about London Fashion Week and then you know the European tour that follows uh, with, with Milan and with Paris, what's your feeling around the, the British fashion industry post-Brexit? Has that posed challenges to it? Is that something that's led to a shift? It really has. The loss of those tax breaks for overseas shoppers in London mm. has really hurt the London um, fashion fashion demand, particularly Burberry. It's another headwind that Burberry has to deal with. But across the across the board, there are hopes that might be revived. It was difficult for the government to say we are giving luxury shopping a tax break when we had the cost of living crisis going on. Optically, it didn't look very good. But now that seems to be subsiding there are hopes that that can be reversed and that can breathe life back into London fashion sales. Angelina, I wonder when you think about the other shows that you'll be going to and the other brands that you'll be monitoring, what other highlights are you looking out for? I mean, obviously, uh, Louis Vuitton is always a big big moment because uh, it's the biggest uh, luxury fashion brand and... uh, so uh, last month in January was the menswear show. So that was a Pharrell Williams uh, third show for the brand since it's been named second show in Paris. So now, you know, it'll be interesting to see what Nicolas Gesquier offers for 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 ladies. And, uh, you know, there you know, uh, we you know, when Pharrell Williams was named, you know, people were saying, oh, maybe he's going to like take all the, the spotlight away from 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 uh, Nicolas Gesquier, but actually Nicolas Gesquier, you know, he's been at um, Louis Vuitton for uh, 10 years and they just renewed his contract. So it's a vote of confidence for Nicolas Gesquier. And uh, and so I'll, I'll, for sure, I'll be I'll be looking forward to that one. I'm still hoping to get my invite, but uh, <laughs> um, and then uh, and then Hermes as well. I mean, Hermes is the, you know, uh, Andrew was sort of mentioning the quiet luxury. Hermes is uh, you could put it in that basket. I mean, it really caters to the most uh, to the ultra high net worth individuals. And, uh, and you know, for many, many years, we associated Hermes with uh, leather goods, with handbags and with, you know, but actually they've done tremendously well when it comes to ready to wear. And they have these two um, uh, uh, designers, uh, you know, two ladies, uh, one for menswear and one for, for women's wear, and they've done wonders. Uh, so, you know, but that, but that one of, of course is, you know, you, it's, it's, it's less, uh, you know, on logos, it's less on bold maximalism, that that Andrea was talking about it's more on the the the, the quiet but uh you know the the think about um you know clothes that you can you know it, their their viability will last for over a season uh, let's put it this way um and then otherwise uh you know Dior is always an important one of course uh Maria Grazia Curie she's been uh, she's been with the brand for for many years and actually she's done wonders as well for commercially Andrea, final thought from you. 
it's the 40th year of London Fashion Week, so it's a bit of a milestone as well. Um, have you have you kind of a particular view on on where the the next 40 years might be taking London Fashion? Um, London's always been very innovative in in fashion. When we think about you know many designers come through St Martins, for example, London can be quite edgy as well. So I think that it's important to um, keep that you know experimentation edginess um, to, to have a different point of view from some of the bigger capitals and I think if Burberry can get it right it can really reinforce that. That was Bloomberg Opinion columnist Andrea Felstead and our European luxury reporter Angelina Rascoet. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Stephen. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the Reserve Bank of Australia releasing minutes from its latest policy meeting, and we'll get a preview. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. In the week ahead, the Reserve Bank of Australia releases minutes from its latest policy meeting. That's when the RBA left its benchmark rate on hold after lifting it 13 times since 2022. Bloomberg's Doug Krisner and Paul Allen from the Daybreak Asia team on what it all means. Tom, we know how rampant inflation was in many developed economies during the pandemic, and central bankers responded with aggressive rate hikes. In the last year, the stories seemed to shift to immaculate disinflation. But that's no longer a given. As the recent U.S. CPI data show, price declines have stalled, and it's forced an adjustment to expectations for the number of rate cuts from the Fed and how aggressive the Fed may be. Other central banks are facing a similar dynamic, and this week we might get insight into how the RBA views the inflation story. Minutes from the last meeting of the Reserve Bank of Australia scheduled for release on Tuesday. For a look ahead, we're joined by Swati Pandey, Bloomberg Australia Economy Government reporter, and uh, Swati, we've got a big piece of the puzzle with the uh, January unemployment numbers ticking up to 4.1%. I believe that's the highest in two years. 100,000 full-time jobs lost, a little bit more. 
Is that it? Can we say that tightening is now off the table for the RBA? It was a, a surprising piece of data and a very important one as well because the RBA has been looking at the jobless rate and that was also one of the reasons why they have been hawkish. Uh, but the ABS has tried to play it down that report by saying there is a lot of seasonality in December and January, January being a very popular month for people to go on uh, holidays. And also there have been some people who uh, were marked as unemployed, but they were actually in between jobs. So we could see uh, a revision in the unemployment rate, maybe going back down in February. So I would say it's probably too early to say that uh, we are in a market where the uh, labor, where the labor market is easing. Um, There are tentative signs, uh, but Overall, the RBA's assessment is that the labor market is still tight and demand is still exceeding supply. That said, the labor market data did get the market's attention. We spoke earlier in the week with Charlie Jamison. He is the CIO of Jamison Coot Bonds. Here's what he had to say. We need to be generating more employment in order to keep those numbers sustainable. Uh, there has been a lot of, of loss of momentum in the economy, as we said, and that's certainly uh, you know different to what you guys are seeing in, in the United States at the moment, where the economy seems to have accelerated a little bit in the in the first part of the year, looking at employment and uh, and inflation data. So it's brought forward now the notion of rate cuts from the RBA. Swati, is it too soon to talk about rate cuts? It's actually not too soon, uh, but if you ask uh, Reserve Bank Governor Michelle Bullock, she would say it is too soon because they are still not ruling out interest rate hikes. That was her uh, commentary last week. Uh, so they are not ruling anything out for that matter, but she's still sounding hawkish. She's still talking hard on inflation. Uh, Markets are now expecting uh, some probability of an August rate cut. There are some economists who are expecting a June rate cut. A Bloomberg economist is also expecting a rate cut around May, June. So, yes, it's it's still uh, three months down the track, I would say. What's the inflation story telling us right now? So, inflation is still well above the RBA's target. It still has a four-handle to it. RBA's target it is 2.2 to 3%. They are targeting the midpoint 2.5%. So it is still at a level where uh, Michelle Bullock is really uncomfortable. And that is one of the reasons her uh, vague guidance, I would say, is for interest rates to remain elevated for longer. The RBA's forecast does not show inflation in the midpoint until 2026. I was reading comments uh, earlier in the week from Marianne Kohler, the head of economic analysis from the RBA. And one of the things she was cautioning is that inflation may be sticky. Paul, give me your perspective. You live in Sydney. What is it like, you know, the cost of living right now? What are common people kind of dealing with in their everyday affairs? Yeah, this is an interesting one that you raised because uh, we had Michelle Bullock last week uh, speaking uh, to Parliament about this and questions about businesses using the cover of high inflation to start pushing up prices were raised. And look, certainly from an anecdotal point of view, and I'm sure Swati will back me up here, is if you just go on your regular grocery shop, you're just out and about doing things. Inflation's running at, you know, something above uh, the RBA's target window. But 
you're buying things that might be higher by 50, 60, even 100% than what they were a year ago. Now, the two big supermarket chains in Australia, Coles and Woolworths, they're coming under fire as well for this type of thing. They're defending themselves against this accusation of price gouging. But, you know, it's, it's a hot subject in Australia at the moment, isn't it, Swati? Just how much consumers are paying for things and how that doesn't really square away with the official inflation rate. That's absolutely right. Haircuts have become very expensive and it's um, eating out. Um, restaurants have raised their prices. Um, I, I still would say that when you're out and about in Sydney, if you go to a, a pub on Friday, it's still buzzing. It's still teeming with people. So um, we are not really seeing that impact on everyday kind of lifestyle yet. Uh, we've not had a big impact on uh, people really cutting down uh, drastically uh, on their budget uh, at an aggregate level. I'm sure there are people at either ends of, of the spectrum who are uh, very deeply affected. But if you are going out and about, it just feels like a, a normal day. During Boxing Day, in fact, around Christmas, uh, shopping malls were chock-a-block. There were huge queues of cars waiting to park. And that was the time we were talking about a hard landing, soft landing. So it just did not feel like a uh, a recession is coming for that matter. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I think we have, just in listening to the conversation here, I think we have to discriminate between services inflation and goods inflation. And I recently saw that the IMF was recommending that the RBA needed to raise rates to tame inflation. Is the IMF looking more at the services side than the goods side? I would say the IMF is looking at uh, the you know, the services side because that is something that Michelle Bullock and earlier Marion Kohler mentioned as well that that is that part of inflation is quite sticky and their concern is that uh, it it will remain elevated for some time and another concern that they have is inflation expectations so if you allow inflation to remain higher or above the target band for for a long time it will unanchor or 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 um, demore uh, inflation expectations as well, which right now is at 2.5 midpoint. Well, we mentioned that uh, Michelle Bullock, the RBA governor, was uh, speaking with senators last week in Australia. She took questions on this. What was she saying about it? She actually said that the IMF is not particularly talking about Australia. Uh, she said this is something they are talking about in general for developed economies uh, because inflation continues to remain main a concern, but also as far as goods inflation is concerned, it's still too early to say that we have won that battle because we have conflicts going on in parts of the world. There are uh, supply chain disruptions that have again happened with the attacks in Red Sea. So um, even as far as goods inflation is concerned, Michelle Bullock is not willing to, to um, say that we, we have won the battle there. So my understanding is that the RBA during its tightening cycle raised rates 13 times for a total of 420 basis points. The policy rate now is at 435. Paul, help me understand how that connects to the mortgage market in Australia. The big four banks here uh, often cop a lot of criticism for being incredibly quick to pass on increases to the cash rate to people who are borrowing money off them. And uh, in a country like Australia where 
house buying, uh, auctions, uh, practically a national sport. Uh, the tax regime is also set up very generously for people who want to buy investment properties. Uh, these sorts of interest rate moves uh, really get people talking. There is a fair bit of competition, but if you're taking out a mortgage in Australia, yes, you do pay a lot more than you were a couple of years ago during the depths of the pandemic when interest rates were very, very low. And we saw property prices just absolutely taking off. Now, a lot of people took out loans when rates were at those low levels. Those rates have since increased, but we haven't seen a huge amount of mortgage stress. There's been very few for sales and certainly None of what was predicted at the time seems to have come to pass. Is that your observation, Swati? Yes, absolutely. Um, I would also like to add there that Australians are among the most indebted household in the world. So we have a debt-to-income um, ratio of roughly 185%, and that is one of the reasons um it was expected that households would be very, very deeply hit by these interest rate hikes. Um, but uh, we had uh, earnings from Commonwealth Bank of Australia early, uh, earlier this week, and uh, they had like $5 billion in profits. Uh, so clearly, we are not seeing that impact in defaults and uh, non-performing assets for banks, at least. So Swati, I'm wondering whether or not when we get these minutes from the last RBA meeting on Tuesday, whether we're going to be able to, to learn anything here, whether it's going to be uh, kind of a, a level of understanding that the market will have, or do we need to say that because of this very, very disappointing employment report, that it's essentially all bets are off now. We're, we're starting almost from a clean slate. So, uh, Doug, we will have a monthly inflation report next week. Uh, that is going to be critical for markets. Uh, and if that is showing a softer number, uh, I think rate bets will uh, will be brought forward more convincingly than, than now. Uh, as far as the minutes are concerned, the Reserve Bank governor held her first press conference um, after the rate decision last week. And uh, that went on for almost an hour. And a lot of the questions around her views on interest rates, inflation, and economy were answered. And then she also appeared in two parliamentary appearances. So I think as far as the RBA's thinking is concerned, we already have a lot of information from them. So not sure how much more the minutes are going to show. Uh, but definitely markets will be looking out for that monthly inflation number. And Doug, I'm not sure if you're aware, we're actually in the presence of history here because uh, that was the first ever press conference by an RBA governor and Swati got to ask the first ever question. So uh, that caused a little bit of <laughs> consternation among the media pack. Swati, thank you so much for making time to chat with us. Uh, Swati Pandey, Bloomberg Australia, economy and government reporter. And of course, Paul Allen in Sydney, who is a member of uh, the Daybreak Asia team. Thanks to you both. I'm Doug Krisner. You can catch Brian Curtis and myself weekdays here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia beginning at 9 in the morning in Hong Kong, 8 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Our thanks to Doug and Paul, and that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.